Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. On December 3rd, 1923, one of the most notorious crimes happened south of Reynolds in Taylor County, Georgia. Two teenagers waved down 51-year-old Howard Fales Underwood as he motored down the dirt road that headed toward the Flint River from the cotton mill village of Potterville. He was a farmer and a landowner and doing well for himself. He was also a traveling salesman. He sold McNess household spices and medicines and sometimes would be gone from home overnight. The two teenagers thought they had run into some luck that Monday because just the right man was coming down the road. They knew Mr. Underwood, and they knew he was known to carry cash with him because of his business. As they were waiting for him to get to them, they made some plans. Willie Jones, age 17, and Gervis Bloodworth, age 19, had been drinking heavily and splitting shingles for Mr. Simmons in Macon County. They were planning to go to Florida with a couple of girls, and they needed money. The girl part gets interesting, but I will get to that later. Howard Underwood obviously recognized the boys, and being the nice guy he was, agreed to give them a ride down the road. Gervis Bloodworth sat in the seat next to Mr. Underwood. Willie Jones stood on the running board. The signal for Willie was when Gervis leaned over, it was time to shoot. Willie shot Howard Underwood with a single-barrel shotgun behind his right ear at point-blank range. Dr. Turk, who later examined his body, testified that there were powder burns at the point of entry. Willie and Gervis then both searched Mr. Underwood's pockets and took all the money, including a purse he used for business. They said they took about $200, which is worth about $3,500 today. They put Mr. Underwood's body in the back and drove down the road for a short distance before leaving the car and taking off. Did I mention that Howard Underwood had a wife and nine children? Mm, yeah. Time flies, close your eyes, imagine you could see Everybody else's dream, what a comfort it would be. All along, standing strong, the way it ought to be. But you can never walk alone on your way to being free. This story would begin as the heinous murder of Howard Underwood. Before the case would close, it would become the story of Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth. Newspaper columnists around the country would write and sensationalize this couple and made them famous by publishing their photos and telling their story about the wiles of drinking whiskey. The media made them folk heroes. The two guys received letters in the jail from girls all around who were in love with them after they were found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. One girl even attempted suicide because of Willie's plight. She had never even met him. A note found in the hand of Elsie Hayden when she lay unconscious after taking poison 
at the Winder, Georgia train station that she could no longer stand to live because the boy she loved was to be hanged. The note closed with a request that word be sent to Willie Jones to come see her or that the judge in Columbus, Georgia would allow him to come. One day when the couple was leaving court to go back to jail, they posed for pictures for the newspaper photographers. They even gave them names of a few sweethearts and asked the reporters to mail them photos. Though confined to jail, they seemed to be living large and enjoying the limelight and all the sympathy that the newspaper articles had garnered for them. On the other hand, at the Howard Underwood home outside of Reynolds, a young widow and nine children were peering out the windows, wondering when their dad was coming home. Howard F. Underwood, born in 1871 in Reynolds, was the oldest of nine children of John Howard and Mary Jane Amerson Underwood. Howard lost his wife, Minnie Kimball, in 1915 when she was only 34 years old. At the time of her death, they had seven children. Three years after Minnie died, Howard married a 14-year-old girl by the name of Maggie Waters. Yep, you heard it right. They married them young in those days. When Howard was killed five years later, the two of them had three additional children. Now there were 10 children. Thankfully, five of them were grown. Anyway, the now 18-year-old wife was left with a lot on her plate. By the way, the 18-year-old wife lived to be 93 years old and I got to know her well before she passed away. Our conversations were about her funeral plans, mainly, but there were a few conversations about the book, Murder at the County Line, that was written about this saga by Aveline Bloodworth and released in 1985. Maggie Underwood wanted nothing to do with that book, and in fact, she got upset even talking about it. I wonder if it had to do with the fact that the author was related to one of the slayers, after doing the research for this podcast, I began to understand. I remember well the author, Aveline Bloodworth, who came to town with the books to sell. Who else would be better to help her sell her books? She went straight to my daddy, who loved that a book had been written about a local story that his daddy had told him about many times. My daddy was only five years old at the time of the murder. There were many family connections to this story in Taylor County. My wife, in fact, was an Underwood and closely related. Howard's only brother, Udolfo Sykes Underwood, was 20 years younger than his deceased brother and was already a very successful and well-known businessman at the time of the murder. Sykes, as he was called, was my wife's grandfather, although my wife was born some 31 years after the murder. Sykes and his 29-year-old wife, Maddie, already had seven children from eight months to nine years of age. My future father-in-law, Ralph Underwood, was part of that brood and was almost eight months old at the time of the murder. Although Sykes and Maddie would later have four more children of their own, they stepped up to the plate to help raise Howard and Maggie's younger children. I have no idea how they did it. The murder of Howard was not an easy thing for the Underwoods to take. There were lots of people impacted in the Underwood family. It was truly devastating and changed everyone's life forever. As you might imagine, and as he should, Sykes said he neglected his businesses to personally lead the charge to find out who did it 
and to make sure whoever did it would be prosecuted according to the law. In fact, he was officially appointed to be part of the prosecutor's team of investigators. It did not take them long to find the culprits. Howard Underwood was shot and killed on Monday, December 3rd, 1923. Being a traveling salesman, it was not unusual for him to not come home, especially if the dirt roads were muddy. But his young wife began to get worried about him Monday night when he did not come home. By Tuesday morning, there was a big effort by many friends and officials to find him. His vehicle was found Wednesday, two days later, abandoned on the side of the road with the curtains drawn shut so no one could see inside. Howard's body was found on the floorboard between the front seat and the back seat of his automobile. Friends and family converged on the scene to investigate. Obviously, in those days, police tape was not used. Sheriff Beeland and his son, Deputy Lewis Beeland, arrested the boys the same night the body was found and transported them to jail in Columbus for their own protection. The same afternoon the body was found, a coroner's inquest was convened at Goddard Funeral Home, which was in the back of the general store. The verdict from the inquest was rendered that Mr. Underwood died from murder for the purpose of robbery. Later, information would come out that Willie Jones was having an affair with his older brother's wife, and they had been seeing each other regularly without his brother's knowledge. The plan was for Willie to rob Mr. Underwood and for him and Julia to take off to Florida. Gervis Bloodworth also had a girl, Nora Blanche Jones, and she was ready to go. There was also information that Willie took the money and gave it to Julia after the murder, but he later denied that. But there was enough to arrest Homer and Julia Jones, maybe not for being complicit in the crime, but for being a material witness. We learned for sure that strong drink mixed with sex has been causing real trouble for people for at least 99 years. Interestingly, Homer Jones stayed with his wife and never stopped trying to help his brother. One thing is pretty obvious, one or more of the girls squealed on their boyfriends when they discovered a murder had taken place. They were looking forward to Florida, but did not know the boys had to kill someone to get them there. Thus the quick arrest of the two boys on the evening of the day they found the body. Incredibly, a grand jury was convened in Butler on Monday, December the 10th, just five days after the body was found. Jones and Bloodworth were indicted, but Homer and Julia Jones were not, but they held them in jail as material witnesses. Judge Munro set the trial date for the next Tuesday, December the 18th, he said he was giving the lawyers plenty of time to get ready for the trial. Trial was set for 10 days after the indictment, 13 days after the body was found, and 15 days after the murder. They were not wasting time. Things have changed in our justice system since 1923. In the meantime, the suspects were talking to anyone who listened. They were telling people that they killed Howard Underwood for money, and they had no hard feelings toward him, but liked him a lot. They were remorseful. They were telling reporters, officers of the law, ministers, and even members and friends of the Underwood family. There was no protection for them being interviewed. In the meantime, this tribute was published in the Butler Herald about Mr. Underwood. 
And I quote, Perhaps no man has ever lived in the Potterville community who was more universally beloved than Mr. Howard F. Underwood. And not only in the community in which he lived, but throughout the county, he was loved, honored, and respected for the noble traits of character which dominated his entire life. No one said aught against him. Truthfully, no one could say aught against him. A noble man is gone, the life taken by a murderous shot. The funeral service was conducted by Reverend J.T. Adams, witnessed by the largest funeral congregation ever assembled in Potterville. Family requested that Mr. Underwood's body be taken home for the visitation, which was fairly common in those days. Friends and family sat up with the deceased until the funeral and the burial at Mount Olive Cemetery. Arrangements were in the hands of Goddard Funeral Home. With humble spirits and tears, the boys readily admitted the heinous crime, and they blamed it on whiskey. Family members of the young boys would speak out when the boys were talking to reporters and tell them to make sure they say that the story is not about these boys, but about the dangers of drinking whiskey. That narrative worked in changing public opinion. Attorneys B. Land, C.W. Foy, and Walter Sneed were appointed to defend the two boys. The suspects could not afford lawyers, but there were no public defenders in that day, so the boys got the best lawyers Taylor County had to offer for free, and they would be represented well. The chief defense lawyer was a Reynolds man by the name of Homer Beeland. Homer was 55 years of age and at the top of his game and a very experienced attorney. He was no fool, and he took his job seriously, even at the expense of making many of his friends around town angry, including his Underwood friends. Homer Beeland, by the way, had an 18-year-old son by the name of Dan Beeland, who I am sure was keeping up with the details of the entire trial and watching and learning from his dad. Dan would later become a very prominent defense attorney in Columbus, Georgia. It would have suited most of the angry public at the beginning if these boys would have just been found guilty and paid for the crime. Law officers guarded their cells because they were afraid they would be captured and lynched by the mob. But Homer Beeland and team fought vigorously for the boys. And pretty quickly, as the story unfolded, and much to the dismay of the Underwood family, the story swayed public opinion to feel mercy for the two suspects and seemingly somewhat forgetting the forever impact their crime had on a family. Jones and Bloodworth became folk heroes. One person who was written about who got the attention of many among the throng of spectators trying to get a glimpse of the boys one day as they were escorted from the jail to the courthouse was an unkept and disabled lady. She was written about in the local paper. She was wearing an old worn out hat with her unkept hair sticking out. She was very poorly dressed with unmatching and torn clothes. She was crying and praying out loud and saying she had tried to raise her children to live right. She was praying the boys would be spared from the gallows and she would a thousand times rather be dead than her son. There was no one to comfort her except 11-year-old grandchild who was holding her hand. She was the mother of Willie Jones. It was said such a scene had never been witnessed in Taylor County before, and the public was watching and reading. Jones and Bloodworth were brought over from Columbus the morning of the trial. 
According to the Butler Herald, thousands had gathered in Butler to witness it. Jones and Bloodworth were tried together. Everyone thought the trial would go very fast. After all, the boys had freely admitted to anyone who would listen that they killed Mr. Underwood for his money. But to the surprise of everyone, except their very capable defense team, the trial lasted longer than everyone anticipated. The local jurors were Lois Smith, L.V. Smith, J.W. Altman, A.H. Jarrell, R.D. Pye, Johnny Codwell, James Montgomery, W.F. Gray, J.T. Parker, J.W. Mott, Marion Jinks, and L. Wilson. It is important to note that one of the prosecutors was C.G. Daniel, who was an attorney from Jacksonville, Florida, who came up to help the state with the trial. He was a nephew to Howard Underwood, and it was personal for him. I'm not sure if he volunteered for the job or they asked for his help, but he played an integral role during the entire saga, even in attempting to sway public opinion from having mercy for the boys instead of justice for his uncle. The first three witnesses called to the stand by the state were men to whom the boys had confessed. Sykes Underwood, brother of the deceased, was the first witness called. He testified that Bloodworth told him that Jones shot and killed his brother. They put the body in the back of the car, drove down the road, and left the body because they got scared. Bloodworth told Sykes Underwood that Jones gave him the purse after it was taken off Howard's body. Sykes testified that that conversation was witnessed by his brother-in-law, Jack Hobbs, and also Sykes' close friend, Jake Bryan, and one of the prosecuting attorneys by the name of Robinson. Defense attorney Beeland immediately attempted to get Sykes Underwood's testimony thrown out on the grounds that Willie Jones was not present during that confession. Judge Monroe overruled and instructed the jury that the testimony was valid but could only be used in relation to Gervis Bloodworth. C.L. Summons, a Columbus jailer, was the next witness. He overheard Willie Jones's conversation saying he'd shot Howard Underwood. C.E. Benz, publisher and editor of the Butler Herald, testified that Jones admitted to him he shot Underwood and that Bloodworth stated he gave Jones a signal to shoot by moving to one side. He stated he interviewed both in the local jail. Deputy Sheriff Lewis B. Land, son of Sheriff B. Land said when he arrested Bloodworth at his mother's home in Macon County, he took a purse from his pocket and Bloodworth told him it belonged to Underwood. Dr. T.G. Turk testified that Underwood was shot on the right side of his head, just behind his ear. He said there were powder burns, which indicated he was shot at point-blank range. Dr. Turk also stated that on December the 3rd, he passed Mr. Underwood's car with two men in uniform in it. Incredibly, a 10-year-old child was called to the stand. Nora Jones was a cousin to Willie Jones. State Attorney Robinson examined her about her stating she saw Bloodworth burn up his coat and hat the day of the murder. She finally admitted she didn't actually see it, but she heard Gervis tell Willie that he had burned his coat and hat. On day two, the state brought several witnesses who testified finding shells near where Underwood's body was found that matched the shells found in Bloodworth's pack after his arrest. Obviously, the public was doing a lot of investigating on their own. After 21 witnesses had been brought to the stand, 
the state rested its case at 1.40 p.m. Wednesday, December the 19th. The defense brought no witnesses to the stand. The trial took a turn when the defense attorney said they would be content with a life sentence. Attorney Foy said this, Whoever did this needs to be punished, but I'm not going to insist these men did not do it. That statement was followed by an appeal for mercy for the young men. Mr. Flournoy, one of the state's attorneys, said, If we didn't prove they did it, then let them loose. He went on to say that mercy should not be based on the fact that they did not have the same opportunities in life. Everyone needs to know that when you murder someone, there is a death sentence. The state is not going to ask you to hang them. It contends the punishment is fixed. If that is changed, it is up to you. But don't do it based on sympathy. Beland gave the defense his final argument for mercy based on the lack of advantages the boys had in life. The jury began their deliberations after supper at 6.52 p.m. The jury deliberated for three hours and 40 minutes. The verdict was read in court at 10.50 p.m. after the boys were brought back to the courthouse from the jail. The defense demanded the jurors be polled. The jury foreman was J.T. Parker. They found both Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth guilty of murder without recommendation, which means they did not recommend a life sentence instead of the death sentence. The execution was set for January 18th, basically a month away. They would be hung in Butler, Georgia. The boys wept at the judgment, as did their families who were in attendance. When asked if they had anything to say, Bloodworth said, no, I reckon not. Jones said, no, sir. A motion for a new trial was immediately filed with a hearing set for January 15th in Columbus. The hearing would take place three days before the scheduled hanging. In the meantime, the authorities in Taylor County started getting ready for the hanging by constructing the gallows and building a fence so onlookers could not see. There had been only two other legal hangings in Taylor County since the existence of the county. We can only imagine the stir all this was causing in Taylor County. They expected to have very large crowds to come to Butler to be there for the hanging. And the townspeople delivered. It was a carnival-like atmosphere that Friday with thousands in town. My grandfather, who was 40 years old at the time, told us a little about that day many years later. He and his 81-year-old father had been asked to drive their horse-drawn carriage hearse to Butler that day to retrieve the bodies. And I'll be right back. Who would drive almost two hours to buy a set of tires? Well, I just did, and it was well worth the drive from Lake Oconee to Butler, Georgia to visit Taylor County Tire Shop. I had heard of the stellar reputation of Taylor County Tire Shop. I decided to give the owner and operator Jimmy Williamson a call to get a price on a set of tires for my F-150 pickup truck. He quickly texted me back three options that included the drive-out price, which included sales tax and all. The wonderful price he gave me got my attention. I set an appointment, and at the appointed time, I made the 81-mile trip to Butler, Georgia. Jimmy personally took my truck back to the shop and his men installed my tires. Then Jimmy personally balanced my tires. I may have been there a total of 30 minutes. If you're looking for a great price on tires and quick, efficient, and personal service from the owner, don't you dare purchase tires until you talk to Jimmy Williamson at the Taylor County Tire Shop. 
located at 253 Thomaston Highway in Butler, Georgia. You can reach Jimmy Williams at the shop at 478-862-2530. That's 478-862-2530. The best price with the best service adds up to the best value. After the trial and before the scheduled hearing and hanging, there were other developments. The two boys were continuing to get media coverage. They talked about their new relationship with God. A minister, Dr. Jenkins, who had been visiting them, also was interviewed about the fact that they had both been gloriously converted. The boys were stating they did not know what they were doing when they killed Underwood, and they believed God would save them from the gallows. Many people were pulling for them as the hearing date got closer. In other news, Sheriff Beeland, who led the group that arrested the two boys and was fully involved in this case, was suddenly gravely ill. This news made the front page of the Butler Herald. A few days after his illness was announced in the paper, Sheriff Beeland's son, Deputy Sheriff Lewis Beeland, walked in the courthouse and walked into the sheriff's office door partly closed the door behind and shot himself with a 32 caliber pistol he had taken for someone he had arrested. Mm, yeah. Time flies, close your eyes, imagine you could see Everybody else's dream, what a comfort it would be Strong the way it ought to be, but you can never walk alone on your way to being free. Eli Gautney, a well known Taylor County citizen, happened to be walking down the hall of the courthouse when he saw Beeland enter the office and immediately heard the gun go off. He rushed to offer assistance as others followed. Beeland lived about five hours before he passed away at 9.15 p.m. It was said that he was despondent over his dad's illness and also over money issues. Several people had seen him that day and it was said he greeted them in his normal jovial manner, was acting like nothing was wrong. Exactly one week later, Sheriff Beeland passed away, four days before the scheduled hanging. The two law enforcement officers who were very instrumental in the capture and arrest of Willie Jones at Gervis Bloodworth died a little over a month after Howard Underwood's body was found. They would never know how it all turned out. In the meantime, legal maneuverings were rampant by the defense team. The January 15th hearing before the January 18th execution was delayed because Homer Beeland had been out of town and did not have time to prepare. Over the next year, Jones and Bloodworth's lawyers worked hard to get the hanging put off and to save their lives. There were appeals to the Supreme Court, the State Prison Board, and to the governor. There were charges of witnesses tampering with the jury, which was later proven to be not true. Another affidavit with the signature of J.M. Jones, father of Willie, stating he saw 16 men and a Mr. Anglin, the bailiff, huddled together in close conversation near the courthouse during a break. John Kurtzie claimed in another affidavit that Jack Hobbs made a statement that if money would hang the defendants, they would surely get home. None of these charges were ever proven to be true. New trials kept getting denied, and the defense attorneys kept appealing. 
Almost a year later, on January the 9th, 1925, the hanging was on. Thousands converged on Butler. It was a carnival-like atmosphere. There were mews and wagons all over town. As I mentioned, my grandfather and great-grandfather were there waiting with their horse-drawn hearse. Guards with army rifles, shotguns, and heavy caliber pistols were keeping people back by the ropes. To say it was the most sensational event ever to take place in Taylor County would be an understatement. As the prisoners were being transported from the Columbus jail to Butler, to the surprise of all, the judge suddenly stopped the proceedings. Some were very disappointed. Many were relieved. The issue at hand was the Georgia law required there be privacy when someone was executed. It was determined that the 16-foot fence board that had been built around the jail yard was not sufficient for privacy required by the law. Curious onlookers were in place to watch from the rooftops, and there were even some in the trees. There was also concern that people could stand close enough to the fence to look between the slats. Willie Jones told a reporter that the Lord has power over death. Gervis Bloodworth said he never thought they would be hung. One of the guards were overheard telling the prisoners that they are very, very lucky. Jones replied, it was the will of God. Local authorities began immediately to work on the privacy issues with the jail yard. They built the fence higher and removed all the spaces between the boards and built it all up and put it all out of sight. But all that work would prove to be useless. Legal maneuvers began again. One of the allegations, for instance, was that one of the jurors was related to Maggie, Mr. Underwood's widow. New dates were set for the hangings that year, but each time Homer Beeland used legal maneuvers to get the execution put off by appeals to the state Supreme Court. Sykes Underwood and his family were not happy with their lifelong friend and defense lawyer, Homer Beeland. Obviously, their ill feelings were not lost on Homer Beeland. Beeland was quoted in the paper saying that Sykes Underwood and Jack Hobbs are his friends, but he has to do his job. He said he is not doing his job in a spirit of ill will towards the kinspeople of the deceased. Willie Jones wrote letters to the local newspaper for public consumption. He was warning young people of the workings of the devil in their lives and pleading for them to turn to God. He had become an evangelist from his jail cell. He was also asking for prayer from all believers and using scripture about the evils of capital punishment and attempting to convince the public that hanging them would be murder and very offensive to God. There is no doubt people were praying for Jones and Bloodworth. But the Underwood family also wrote letters for public consumption. This letter from Sykes Underwood appeared in the Butler Herald on February 5, 1925 over a year after his brother's murder. Notice he does not call the murderers boys as the media depicted them. To the public, there's been so much in the newspapers during the past few weeks about the approaching execution of the Taylor County 
men, in quotes, Jones and Bloodworth, for the slaying of a peaceable, law-abiding citizen of Taylor County, and I feel it is a duty I owe to the public to make a brief statement. I want it understood clearly that the part I have taken in this case, despite the fact that it was a brother of mine, that the men deliberately murdered on a highway near Reynolds has been solely that of a citizen who believes in upholding the law. For in that capacity alone have I abhorred. I have never at any time persecuted anyone. I believe in letting the law take its course. When sentiment ran high, I stood firmly against any overt hat. I pleaded for legal recourse, and they got it. A jury composed of 12 of as intelligent and refined men as Taylor or any other county affords found these men guilty of first-degree murder. The law prescribed the punishment, and the law should be upheld. I have an abiding faith in justice. And while I deplore the situation in which these young men find themselves, I also see the other side of the picture. Aside the so-called welfare workers from Atlanta and elsewhere, especially Dr. Fred M. Jenkins of Columbus, failed to offer the public. It is of a widow and nine fatherless children, the youngest only two months old at the time of the horrible premeditated murder. It seems to me that if those people had the welfare of our noble state honestly at heart, they wouldn't fail as they have to see these little faces against the cold window pane, watching and waiting for a good and true father who has never returned. In order that these fatherless children might get some education and have at least some of the advantages so necessary for their future welfare, this widow has had to leave her home and seek employment. These children are thus deprived to a large extent of their mother as well as their father. When you hear a lot of sentimental stuff, grasp the other side of the picture also. And if law is not to be upheld and made to be respected, can any of us feel that this is a safe community to live in? For 13 months, I have neglected my business to work for law enforcement. My friends, I feel, are with me in this matter. They too have brothers and families who may suffer if laws are to be broken at will. Life is precious. Wasn't the life of the victim of these young men as precious to him and his loved ones as the lives of the young men they picture to you? I feel that it's time for all the good citizens of our state to demand justice and abolish this sickly sentimentality that so readily springs into action when a criminal of our land is about to be punished for a crime he has committed. When thinking of what crime will bring you to, Look at both sides of the picture. It must be done if you're going to be fair. Respectfully, U.S. Underwood. There was also the letter to the paper from the lawyer nephew, Mr. C.G. Daniel, who was one of the prosecutors. And here's that letter. Believing that the people of the state of Georgia, and by the way, my home state, should know some of the facts from the side of the state of Georgia in the case of Gervis Bloodworth and Willie Jones, I take this means of telling them what, in my humble estimation, they should know. 
although knowing that from a legal standpoint it has no bearing on the case, it will not affect the administration of justice at the hands of the fair and honorable courts of Georgia. It will not have any effect on the governor of the state, for in my estimation and opinion there lies the only hope of Jones and Bloodworth for a commutation of sentence. I was present at the trial of these boys for murder of my uncle, Howard F. Underwood, and assisted the state of Georgia in the prosecution of them. And I know there is no technical error upon which a reversal of the conviction could be obtained. And I must say a just conviction fairly and honorably, although it is now trying to be torn down in a highly degenerate, unfair, abdominal, and detestable, underhand, crooked way by the counsel for the defense. These boys got justice, and they did not want it. They are trying to prey upon the sympathy of the good people of the state of Georgia without coming clean with all the facts in the case. They are hiding some of them. They are facing death knowing that they have hid in their bosom some of the facts that should come to light. They claim they have been saved by our Lord and Savior Jesus, which is not the case. They are hiding the devil. They are still the agents of the devil. They are still of the same heart and mind that they were at the time they killed Howard F. Underwood. They have not found peace with their God. They have locked up in their hearts secrets of the devil that they dare not divulge. What did they do with the money they took out of the pockets of the dead man? What did they do with the $200 and over that they took? Who did they give it to? What did the person that they gave it to do with it? Let them tell this. They dare not do it. A little girl, I do know her name, but the one that was with Willie Jones at the time he was arrested told a number of men in my presence that she saw the paper money in a pocketbook and that it was a whole lot of money and that the boys gave this money to Homer Jones' wife at that time. Homer Jones and his wife were incarcerated in the jail in Columbus. When this little girl got on the stand in Butler at the trial of this case, she did not know what she did say in reference to the money. In the meantime, Homer Jones and his wife had secured their release from the jail in Columbus, and this little girl was staying with them at their house. What did they do with the money? What did they do with the dead man's money? What did they do with it? I do not know what they bought with it, but I have my idea. I have no proof to substantiate my theory, but I have a right to my own conclusion. They did not throw this $200 away. They kept it until they hired counsel with it to defend them. They hired a lawyer with the dead man's money. They are trying to get a new trial now, and they are using this money to further their ends. You may say that the court appointed them a lawyer. That is true. Who is the most active lawyer appointed by the court? That is the one whom they paid with my dead uncle's money. This is my theory, and I will say it, and I will stand by it. Listen. Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth, God will not have any mercy upon you until you come clean. Come clean. Repent of your sin. You cannot do this halfway. Come all the way. Let it hurt who it may. Your soul is at stake. If you will be saved, come clean. Tell what you did with the money. You know that you got it. You know that you took it. You know that is what you killed my uncle for. And now tell us where the money is. If you do not, you need not look for any mercy at the hands of man or God. 
Your soul is damned if you die with this secret in your heart. Come clean and do it now. C.G. Daniel, Jacksonville, Florida. Homer Beeland vehemently denied Mr. Daniels' accusations that he had received the dead man's money. Not only was there legal maneuvering going on, but there was also a public information war going on. But finally, a little over two years after the murder, it looked like the execution would take place. And I'll be right back. If you're in the market for tires, I highly recommend Taylor County Tire Shop in Butler, Georgia. You will find the best price with the absolutely best service. Taylor County Tire Shop is located in Butler, Georgia on Highway 19 North. Call Jimmy Williams at 478-862-2530. Don't you dare buy tires without talking to Jimmy Williamson at Taylor County Tire Shop. Call 478-862-2520. In the January 21st, 1926 edition of the Butler Herald, an article stated that the last hearings were held before the state prison board and the governor. Willie Jones's mother attended the hearing, as did Sykes Underwood and his friend Jake Bryan. Homer Beeland stated he had fought for the prisoners for two years, and now he was putting responsibility on the governor. The governor denied the stay, and the hanging was scheduled for January 29, 1926. But the execution would take place in Columbus instead of Butler because of change of venue in the last trial. A few days before the hanging, the defendants planned their funerals. They wanted to be buried in the same grave and even discussed being buried in the same casket. They would be buried in a lot owned by Gervis Bloodworth's mother in Phoenix City, Alabama. At the conclusion of the funeral planning meeting, their minister, who had become somewhat famous by being their instrument to conversion, prayed with Jones and Bloodworth. Both young men also prayed out loud. Plans had been made for the hanging in Columbus. Gallows were in place. The hanging was scheduled for January 29th between 11 a.m. and noon. Both Jones and Bloodworth would be hung together. A letter Willie Jones is sent to his lawyer, Homer Beeland, became public. This is the letter. We feel that we must say a word to you before we go. Oh, you have been our friend. You have stood by us. You have waged this fight just as far as a man could go, and now we want you to know we are satisfied. We thank you for all you have done, and we know God will bless you for your faithful work. And now with all the best wishes that one could wish, we leave to you. And when you come home, look for us, for we will remember you there. And we'll be waiting to welcome you home. May your whole life be lighted with God's sunlight. Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth. What I'm about to read appeared in the Butler Herald in the February the 5th, 1926 edition 
the first paper that came out after the hanging. The final chapter in one of the most noted criminal cases in the history of the state, and certainly the most celebrated originating in Taylor County, is now being written as a story of the hanging of Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth, paying the death penalty for the murder of Howard F. Underwood for the purpose of robbery in this county, December 3rd, 1923, and their burial in the family lot of the Bloodworth family in an Alabama city, which is being published under glaring headlines in every daily newspaper in the country and in many weeklies. While this is the third legal hanging for Taylor County since the county's organization in 1852, the two previous ones were mild as time in bringing the accused to justice. The range of interest created and amount of cost placed upon the shoulders of the taxpayers of the county are compared. However, Jones and Bloodworth are the first white men of Taylor County to pay the death penalty for crime. The previous hangings referred to were those of a Negro by the name of Smart who shot to death a railroad conductor, William Cozart. The shooting occurred near the railroad depot in this city about 45 years ago. And Jesse Cook, another Negro, for wife murder in 1887. Both hangings were public and upon scaffolds erected at the foot of a hill one mile north of Butler. In the case of Jones and Bloodworth, this county had never had a crime that any way approached it in its atrociousness or a motive less excusable. That part of history has already been written many times. Now comes the last sad chapter. The two young men were hanged on a double scaffold in the Muskogee Jail at Columbus where they were last tried and convicted following a change of venue granted by Judge M.J. Yeomans, acting for Judge C.F. McLaughlin, who was disqualified in the case. The trap was sprung by Sheriff Beard of Muskogee County at 11.02 a.m. Both were pronounced dead at 11.16 a.m. Jones's neck was broken at the first shock as his body tightened the rope and he died apparently without a shudder. But Bloodworth struggled for more than a minute, dangling at the end of the swinging rope. Physicians who examined both bodies said that Jones' vertebrae was fractured instantly, but that the rope slipped from its place on Bloodworth's neck and it failed to snap the spinal column. His larynx was broken, however, and he strangled to death, although the doctors stated he undoubtedly lost consciousness at the first shock as his body plunged through the trap. Homer Jones, eldest brother of Willie, witnessed the execution at the latter's request and became hysterical as the two youths fell to their death. He was restrained by officers who prevented him from grasping the rope around his brother's neck as the body swung in space, turning slowly round and round. The bodies were cut down at 11.17 a.m. and turned over to a Columbus undertaker for burial preparations. Jones and Bloodworth went to their death with smiles on their faces and cheerful words on their lips. They talked, sang, and prayed for half an hour after they had mounted the scaffold and waited for the trap to fall from under their feet. It was one of the most remarkable exhibitions of cold nerve in the criminal annals of Georgia. Sheriff Beard mounted the stairs to the death cell shortly after 10, but found both youths pale, but thoroughly composed. With him were several deputies and special guards, 
but these were unnecessary as Jones and Bloodworth smilingly greeted their executioner and remarked that it was best to get it over as soon as possible. They went to the steep stairway to the scaffold without a tremor, needing no assistance from the officers. Before the youths were escorted to the death chamber, the sheriff and his deputies had prepared an extra rope in case anything should happen to those already in place. The same ropes were prepared for the hanging in Butler a year ago were used in the execution. The gallows were arranged with a rope supporting both trap doors instead of the usual lever, and the sheriff was provided with a sharp edge hatchet to cut the strand at the appointed moment. The death chamber was crowded with deputies, ministers of the gospel, special guards, and a few newspapers. Sheriff Beard went about his duties methodically, and as soon as all preparedness had been completed, Jones and Bloodworth took their stand on the trap doors over which swung the ropes, each with a hangman's noose at the end. Their coats had been removed and they stood in their shirt sleeves, bright colored neckties in their collars, and each with a pink carnation pinned over their hearts. They were deathly pale, but by far the most composed of all the group that had gathered to see the execution. Homer Jones could hardly restrain his overwrought emotion. In the intervals, he would utter a groan or some ejaculation of despair. Bloodworth was calm, chewing gum, and as the youths mounted to the scaffold, they glanced up in interested fashion at the ropes and then tested the strength of the trapdoors. Dr. Fred M. Jenkins, layman evangelist, offered a brief prayer as the young men bowed their heads. Boys, this is a painful ordeal for me but I am sworn to do my duty as an officer to my God and my country, and I shall do it, said Sheriff Beard, in a low voice, as the boys took their places. Have either of you anything to say? Yes, Sheriff, I do want to say something, and I'm glad for the opportunity before it's too late. It's all right with us. The last words on my lips last night as I went to sleep were, Thy grace is sufficient, and now I know how glorious it is to stand on the bank of eternity and rejoice. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong. I am glad there came a time when I found my way to the cross and found strength to go through this ordeal. I couldn't stand it without the blessed assurance, but I have it, and I am glad. My brother over there is in tears, but he should rejoice because Jesus Christ died for all of us and saved me for all of eternity. I don't mind death. I can stand here and laugh in the face of death, just like the worm in the summertime turns into a beautiful butterfly. So I expect to be saved in heaven and be in endless joy. I want to thank all my friends and the officers who have been so kind to me here in jail and all the ministers who helped me find Jesus Christ and all Christian people everywhere. I hope my memory will be an instrument of righteousness. This pain will soon vanish and I will lift my eyes to eternal sunlight with Jesus. Through him I can stand anything. I say to all of you that God loves you and can bring to you a consciousness of peace and happiness that nothing else can do. Our loved ones are grieving, but Jesus grieved also. They should rejoice for some sweet day we will all be together, and I long for that day. I have never experienced religion outside of prison, for I was converted after I came to this place, but it must be wonderful to know religion outside of jail.
When I get to heaven, I won't forget to give Jesus a message for all of you. And I'll be waiting over there to welcome each one of you when you get there. Bloodworth said to add his name to the same document. At the instructions of the officers, Jones and Bloodworth removed their shoes. But before their hands were bound, they embraced their three religious advisors, Dr. Jenkins, Reverend J.O. Taylor, and Reverend O.F. Barnes. Then they embraced Deputy Sheriff Layfield, their jailer, for more than two years. And Willie Jones threw his arms around the neck of his brother Homer, who was almost hysterical with grief. At no time during their last statement was any reference made to the crime by either of the doomed men, nor to the family of the slain man, H.F. Underwood. Funeral services for Jones and Bloodworth were held at the chapel of T.W. Britton Undertaking Parlors at Columbus at 10.30 Saturday morning. Interment followed in separate caskets in a double grave in Gerard Cemetery in a lot owned by Miss Laura Fullerton, mother of Gervis Bloodworth. The services were conducted by Dr. Fred Jenkins, assisted by Dr. O.F. Barnes, pastor of the Gerard Baptist Church, and Reverend J.O. Taylor, pastor of the Waverly Hall Methodist Church. And I'll be right back with my final thoughts. You are listening to the View from a Hearst podcast. We are 11 months in with over 55 episodes now streaming. This represents over 50 hours of content. Some episodes will make you laugh. Others may even cause a tear or two. And there are Many that will make you think about the important stuff. Some episodes could make you do all three. In 1993, Jimmy Valvano gave his famous ESPY speech just a month or so before he died. He said there are three things you should do every day. You should laugh, have your smiles move to laughter. You should think, slow down from your never-ending quest to move from point A to point B, to think about what's important to you and what's important to the people who important to you, and you should cry. Have your emotions moved to tears, whether tears of happiness or tears of sadness. If you can laugh, think, and cry in a day, he said, you will have a heck of a day. View from a Hearst podcast was created to give you the opportunity to do all three. Give yourself that opportunity and begin listening to the 55 podcast episodes and 50 hours of content. Laugh, think, and cry. Make yourself a great day. I had read the book Murder at the County Line a couple of times since it came out in 1985, although I did not read it again in my research for this podcast. I met the author, Aveline Bloodworth, several times before she passed away and found her to be a very nice and sincere lady. I am very glad she wrote the book. I did not understand when the book came out why the widow of Howard Underwood would be offended by her book. But after doing my own research, I began to understand. 
The fact that Arthur Aveline Bloodworth was a relative of Gervis Bloodworth probably did not help. The real story began as the murder of Howard Underwood, a 51-year-old successful husband and daddy who was loved by all. As the saga unfolded, the story became more about the young men who killed him and them finding God and attempting to evangelize the world from their jail cells than about the victim and his family. Those young men becoming celebrities and folk heroes obviously did not sit well with the Underwood family whose lives had been ruined by them. Jesus said in Matthew 5:21, you heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. If you're a Christian believer, you know that redemption is not based on a person's performance. If it did, we're all hopeless causes because none of us measure up. The bar was set very high for all of us. And that's the message of the Bible. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves and rendered us holy and righteous in His sight based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any Christian who reads the story of Willie Jones and Gervis Bloodworth will find hope for themselves in the strong and enduring message of Jesus Christ. None of us can judge what was truly in their hearts the day their lives ended. My hope is to see them one day on the other side and hear their story straight from their mouths about their redemption. But forgiveness and redemption never change the consequences here for the acts we do here. We simply reap what we sow. My opinion is the Underwood family would have been happy for the young men finding God. But the fact is, in the murderer's writings and interviews, it was always much more about them than it was about remorse for what they had done and all the family members whose lives had been forever changed by their cowardly act. Because of that, some of the Underwood family questioned the sincerity of their conversion and outspoken evangelism. Maybe they were wrong to question that, but they did, and none of us can judge them for that. The newspapers fed the boys' narrative, and it seems the needle of public opinion was moved. There seemed to be more pity for the boys than there was for the victims of their crime. There always has to be a separation between forgiveness and consequences. One does not counsel the other. Today, there are varying opinions on capital punishment. Certainly, there are no more legal hangings. From our perspective today, death by hanging is, at the least, barbaric. Today, 27 of the 52 states authorize capital punishment. Of those 27, 22 of them use lethal injection to put someone to death. There are only five states remaining that authorizes the electric chair for execution. This story is not about whether capital punishment is right or wrong but more about a devastated family in carrying out the law. The Underwood argument was that the law of the land was when someone was convicted of murder, the sentence was execution by hanging, unless the jury found them guilty with recommendation for a life sentence. That never happened in this case. From the time of the murder to the final execution was a little over two years. That is lightning fast in today's judicial system for sure but I suppose it was two years too many for the dismayed Underwoods during that period. 
I do not know if Homer Beeland and Sykes Underwood remained friends after this trial. Maybe they did, and maybe they did not. But you certainly cannot blame Homer Beeland for doing his job. His job was to represent Jones and Bloodworth, and his job became to do everything in his power to make sure they were not hung. He had to be a great lawyer, but in this case, he was simply a public defender, but a very good and determined one. And you certainly cannot blame Maggie Underwood and Sykes Underwood and the rest of the family for their ill feelings. How would you feel if the people who admitted to killing your loved one will be looked on with anything but disdain? My wife, who was born 31 years after this murder took place, has no memories of her grandfather Sykes, who she called Papa Underwood, ever mentioned in this case, although others in the family talked about it. She was 17 when her grandfather died. The truth is, there are no winners here. There are never winners in cowardly acts of evil. A wonderful husband and father of nine was killed in cold blood. Two young men were hung from the gallows until there was no life in them for what they did. But the story is true. And for posterity, the story deserves to be told even 99 years after it happened. As a postscript, Wallace Underwood was less than two years old when his daddy was murdered. He was one of the three young children of Howard and Maggie. Wallace ended up living in Bonifay, Florida for many years. He often made trips to rentals and usually stopped by the funeral home to visit. I knew him well. He made funeral prearrangements with me for himself and his wife. It was obvious to me the details of his funeral and burial were very important to him. I had many conversations with him over the years but I never remember talking about his father's murder. He was very concerned that he and his wife Frankie be buried properly at Mount Olive Cemetery with his parents and the rest of the Underwoods, even though he lived in Florida. He trusted me to make sure that would be done. His wife Frankie died in 1996. Wallace died in 2009 and lived to be 87 years old. I had moved and was not in business in rentals when he died but I know his wishes that were on file were carried out just as he wanted. But one day a few years ago, my wife and I were visiting the graves of her parents who were both buried in that cemetery. I decided to walk over to Wallace's grave. To my surprise, his name and birth date were engraved on this beautiful monument, but there was no death date over 11 years after his death. Somehow that small but very important detail had been overlooked. That bothered me, and my wife and I came home and talked about it. We knew there was nobody left in his family to take care of it, so we decided to pay for getting the death date etched on his monument. For a man who lived to be 87 years on this earth, and whose daddy was murdered long before he had the opportunity to know it, we figured that was the least we could do. Imagine you could see Everybody else's dream What a comfort it would be Viewing life from a hearse It could be worse Laugh, think and cry With the country undertaker